0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Sam Shaheen, a senior editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, I'm talking to the vice president and co-founder of Backcountry Access, Bruce Edgerly. We talk about avalanche transceivers, rescue strategy, and the subtle art of keeping high-tech products like transceivers as simple as possible. I learned a lot talking to Bruce, so I think you will find our conversation interesting and informative. Let's get to it. I'm Sam Shaheen. I'm a senior editor at Blister, and I'm here with our audio engineer, Luke Alley, at BCA headquarters in Boulder, Colorado, with the vice president and co-founder of BCA, Bruce Edgerly. Did I get all that right? Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How are you doing today, Bruce? Great. Yeah. Except uh, I'm not skiing.
1: <laughs> Man, <laughs> me neither. What's up? <laughs> For the first time in like 10 days wow, you must have a hard life. Well, this time of year is awesome. This is when we harvest
0: all the work we've done for the rest of the year. Exactly. And mother nature has been doing work. There is some harvesting to be done. Lines that haven't been in for a long time. (laughs) Yeah. Going off. Very exciting. (laughs) Cool. So let's let's dive right in. Today, we're going to be talking about beacons, transceivers and a little bit about that technology, about the BCA beacon program and a bit about rescue strategies and things that we can do to be safer in the mountains. Uh so to start out, BCA has been a leader in the American transceiver market for a while now. Can you talk a bit about your philosophy to beacon design that has allowed BCA to make consistently good beacons over the years? Yeah, we keep it simple, you know. We we try to Keep our design focused on the 95
1: percentile of the users out there that are recreational and try not to get too distracted by the what we call boutique needs of mechanized guiding and other kind of
0: specialized forms of uh, transceiver searching. So when you say specialized forms of transceiver searching, can you expand upon that a little bit?
1: Yeah, yeah. In a mechanized guiding situation, there's one person that's really good at beacon searching and then everybody else is assumed to be terrible at beacon searching. And in the 95 percentile world, everybody generally is pretty average at beacon searching. It's pretty easy to be average with a digital avalanche transceiver. Everybody can find at least one person. So by assuming nobody can use their avalanche beacon to us is kind of throwing away a lot of valuable resources. And that's kind of what they do in a mechanized guiding situation. They count on one person to find all the victims, and then the guests are considered kind of not very useful labor except maybe for shoveling.
0: Yeah, and I, maybe from a liability perspective, that's that's the right call for those guys. But I, I definitely see that as, as as a fringe case. So if I'm if I'm understanding right, basically it's the, the philosophy is to strip down the features to the features that are most important in a typical a typical rescue scenario. That's that's not a guided or a mechanized party to keep things simple. Is is that more or less correct? Distance and direction to the closest person or two.
1: And, um, you know, no extraneous distracting icons that have to do with pulse rates and uh how many exact burials there are and how far away they are, and various wi fi settings and menu items uh we try to keep away from that kind of stuff, yeah,
0: well, I think so far, it's been working for you guys,
1: yeah, yeah, I mean, we probably had uh leading market share in North America for 20 years, and it's I'd say it's probably still big as it was 15, 20 years ago. So, yeah, we like to be consistent, too. You know, we're not coming out with new transceivers every year. We come out with new transceivers whenever we think we need to,
0: and that's turned out to be, you know, on the five-year horizon or so. Speaking of new transceivers you guys just released a new beacon, the Tracker S. Uh, Can you tell us a bit about that beacon and what sets it apart from your other beacon offerings?
1: Well, we took our simple Tracker 3 and we made it simpler. (laughs) Um, Basically, uh, you know, our Tracker 3 is our kind of our top of the line transceiver. And it it does have quite a few features that are kind of tailored towards the fleet owners. You know, like uh, we have a... USB port that you can use for testing the fleet electronically and um you know all the various functions and the transmit pulse rates and the kind of the interior things
0: so and just just for clarification you say fleet owners is that guiding services rental operations things like that
1: exactly yeah yeah so I mean most people don't need that um so our new transceiver the tracker s is basically a tracker three. Without a lot of those things. Uh, another thing it does not have is motion sensing, uh, which is used for um, automatic revert to transmit. So if you're searching and you get buried, there's a motion sensor in the Tracker 3 that will put it back in transmit mode if you don't move for a minute. Uh, we don't have that. We have a five minute timer. You know, just removing uh, unnecessary chips that most people don't need. Um, but if you want them, you can have Tracker 3. Um, and also we we need to replace the Tracker DTS with a kind of a price point model because the Tracker DTS we're not offering anymore. So after 20 years, uh, we've discontinued it, and now we're replacing it with the Tracker S.
0: Okay. I'm assuming it's coming in at a decently lower price point than the Tracker 3 as well. Yeah, it's like uh, 50 bucks cheaper or so. Okay. And you guys are still offering the Tracker 2, correct?
1: Yes. Yeah, Yeah, so that's kind of our workhorse transceiver. You know, that's something that a lot of the, you know, entry-level will sell a lot of Tracker 2 packages. And while we're on the subject of guiding, a lot of the guides will use the Tracker 3, but they might put their guests in Tracker 2. That's kind of a popular configuration.
0: Just just for ease of use, or...?
1: Yeah, I mean, the Tracker 2 is just so um intuitive there, you know, there's a big button that you pull out and it says pull to search and you you do that and it starts searching and the numbers are big and bright and loud and you, there's no way you can't find somebody with that <laughs> beacon <laughs>
0: Which that's a good feature for a beacon to have right? yeah there's no way you can't find someone <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah so you've performed a decent amount of research about avalanche safety i've read a bunch of a bunch of your papers online so I think we, we'll go through a few few different questions about some of that. From your perspective, what are the one or two biggest things that the average ski tour or split boarder could stand to improve for their own and their group safety?
1: Yeah. So, yeah, we've thought about that a lot because, uh, you know, we we try not to get too focused just on transceivers. You know, we our goal is to do more than just make beacons. It's to save lives. So yeah. uh, we've looked at a lot of cases. And, uh, you know, whenever somebody gets involved in an avalanche and there's a rescue situation, especially if they're using our gear, we'll try to get a hold of them and um, debrief with them and figure out how the product worked and what worked in their search process. And uh, I'd say, you know, 10, 12 years ago, we, we kept getting the same answer. And that was, oh, yeah, well, the beacon search took a minute or two. It was not that hard. And probing, and you know, I, I hit the guy after like two two pokes in the ground, but the shoveling part was hell, and it took forever. And so that's when we started researching how to shovel better, and uh, we came out with the strategic shoveling concept. Okay, and then we took that a step further, and you know, decided, oh, well, these airbags over in Europe sure seem to be working well. They're getting people to the surface, sometimes closer to the surface, not as deep. You know, they don't always get you right on the surface, but they definitely increase the probability of surviving. And... Um, So, yeah, that's when we decided, well, we should make these things more accessible and available and easier to use and more affordable so that Americans, so cheap American (laughs) backcountry skiers
0: (laughs) will use them. Which we all are. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So, uh, (laughs) you know, we know our market. We know how cheap our friends can be. (laughs) So, yeah, that's... uh, So we've kind of been through this evolutionary process where we're trying to get kind of more and more proactive. Like, okay, before it was all about rescuing, and then it was about staying on top with the uh, airbags. And now uh, one of the things we've decided over the years is that communication is a big issue. And people not stopping in the right places and not communicating to the people down below – Tough weather conditions, big winds and um, rollovers. People are skiing steeper stuff nowadays. They're skiing longer pitches because their skis are so awesome. People are getting separated more than they used to, you know. You used to make 10 telemark turns and then you'd stop and then, you know, you could yell up to the guy, okay, come on down. But now, you know, people are straight lining stuff for (laughs) 1,000 feet. Because you can. Yeah. Um, So... In my opinion, if you don't have a radio, your comms are probably dysfunctional. Um, You're probably out of touch with each other a lot of the time. So that's why we launched the whole radio program. Sure. But, I mean, you've heard about all the, you know, a lot of the high-profile cases where, you know, in in bigger groups, people aren't willing to speak up, and there's a little less kind of intimate communication. I think that's a problem. You know, I think traveling around and. In groups bigger than four or five, sometimes can start to get a little bit dysfunctional.
0: So I would say that's an issue. Yeah, I, uh, I, I can speak to that. <laughs> big groups, big groups can get can get scary quickly. Uh, so you you mentioned um, the idea of strategic shoveling for for listeners who may not have a great sense of modern shoveling techniques. Do you want to just give a brief overview of of what that looks like?
1: Yeah, I mean, so the the basic concept is. Don't just dig straight down the, the probe uh, because by the time you get down to the victim, you're not going to have a whole lot of working room and you may just miss their airway and have to start all over again. The idea is to um, get an idea of how deep that person is and kind of adjust how big the so-called excavation corridor should be. Nice you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, some people say back off one and a half times the burial depth um you don't have to be that technical about it but just generally you want to take a step or two back if it's less than a meter okay just dig down the probe because the hole's not going to be that hard to work with if it's that shallow but uh, basically you want to take a few steps back and dig into the hill and yeah
0: so for clarity that steps downhill from the burial burial not not uphill i think that's should be pretty clear, but
1: yeah, and then you want to start shoveling the snow to the sides first to kind of preserve the downhill area for when you're deeper, so when you throw it out the back, there's clearance there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah, you just kind of trench in towards the victim, and then by the time you get there, you've got a nice platform to work with. and so if you need to do first aid or CPR, um, then you've got a nice platform instead of just this rabbit hole. Um, so yeah there have been cases where people have said that that made the difference between the victim surviving and not surviving
0: wow yeah i think i think so many people go and take avalanche courses and focus on all sorts of things you know slope angles and aspects and avalanche forecasts and transceiver searches and all this stuff and when we practice transceiver searches we you know put a beacon in a buried in the snow or put it in like a Tupperware or in a backpack or something. And shoveling isn't something that people really practice that often. But when I was reading through your stuff, it kind of, you know, it was was very, very clear that shoveling needs to be a more important part of avalanche education, or at least emphasized more and practiced more.
1: Yeah, it's become part of most avalanche courses now. And also, um, you know, if you're taking a guiding exam, that's part of the exam. It used to be you had to find, you know, two, three, or even four people and just hit them with a probe. But now you got to dig at least two of them out and make sure they're, they're the right two people. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's cool the way that it's gotten to be a little bit more big picture, including the shoveling part.
0: You've also performed some research specifically on multiple burial scenarios. Can you talk a bit about that research and those findings?
1: Yeah, we've done a lot of research there just to see you know, where we should focus our R&D and all our education materials. And so, I mean, and we're not the only people that have researched it. You know, they've done research in Europe. Um, But generally speaking, the the stats are that 85% of complete burials involve one victim, another 10% involve two, and then another 5% involve uh, more than two. So one to two victims represents 95% tile of all complete burials. So if you can find one to two people you're good. <laughs> the other yeah. 5% we call boutique scenarios. Usually that's done basically as a series of single burials done in series or in parallel hopefully if you have more than one person. If you only have one person, if you've got three people to find, Whew. somebody's not surviving. Nightmares, unfortunately, yeah. yeah. So I mean if if you focus on one and two victim scenarios, that's great. That's going to get you 95% there.
0: Yeah. It's common in beacon practice to sort of practice the, the the harder multiple burial scenarios because at a point just finding a beacon buried in the snow is pretty simple. But it's, it's, it's good, it's good to, for the listeners, I think, to see that data to say, like, really, that's, that's what you're doing, though. And in, in the end of the day, I guess it comes down to shoveling. so
1: Exactly, yeah. I mean, if you have the luxury of having a bunch of people that can shovel, uh, why not put them all on the beacon search? And that makes a three or four victim scenario a lot easier if you have three or four searchers. And not just one searcher. Sure. And that's something that you just don't see a lot of. You hear a lot of discussion, um, you know, all the guiding exams, etc., involve one person searching for three or four victims. Um, we like to teach people how to use their friends to beacon search in parallel in search strips, and you know, you can find four people all at the same time.
0: Excellent. You've written a bit about the impact that free ride ski media has on the public perception of avalanche risk and subsequently average skiers in attempting to emulate their, you know, pro idols. How big of a problem do you think this is and what are some things the industry can or should be doing to mitigate?
1: Well, first of all, let me clarify that I am a total ski film junkie. (laughs) Um, I actually will organize my travel schedule in the fall so I don't miss the uh, the showings of the TGR MSP and level one films here good, good. in town so and I and I used to bring my kids when they were kids and uh, so I don't I don't think it's a problem I think it's awesome and it gets people stoked on the sport but I do think there's a bit of an obligation to show the other side of it you know like it's there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. To make all that happen, it doesn't just happen as easily as it looks. A lot of times they're waiting out avalanche cycles and they're not skiing stuff that they want to ski necessarily because it's too risky, those aspects, those elevations. Um, Sometimes they cancel trips. Um, So anyways, I don't necessarily think that the uh, film companies are obligated to show all that stuff because they're in the business of putting people in seats so we've taken it upon ourselves to kind of show the other side of that and so that's why we came out with this send and return video series that kind of shows the planning and thought process that goes on behind a big day in the backcountry so i don't know i guess um yeah it'd be nice if there was some kind of reference in the the movies that got kids thinking about, you know, the safety side of it all. But it hasn't been happening, so uh we're trying to do that
0: yeah. ourselves. Safety's not sexy, I guess. At least not yet. <laughs> well, I think it is. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So a question I get from a lot of backcountry ski tours, flipboarders, friends of mine and a question that we get at, at at Blister here occasionally too is how old is too old for a transceiver what at, at at what at what age should 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 users be thinking about replacing their old beacons
1: well i would say when when there's some disruptive new technology that actually moves the needle on how probable you're going to find a live person you know like I would say there hasn't been disruptive technology in transceivers for quite a long time. When it went digital, that was disruptive. So sure. that's when a lot of people switched over from analog. In the absence of major disruption, uh, I would say you know ten years, uh, because most of the components that we use are rated to last ten years or so. You know after a while they they can lose a little bit of, I don't You have to ask our electrical engineers, but they tell me, you know, most of the parts are, you know, rated to last at least 10 years just sitting there, not being used. Um, so 10 years and, you know, most warranties will disappear after five years. So uh, most fleet owners, you know, commercial operators that, Loan or demo beacons out to people who rent them. They, they'll swap out when the warranties expired. So I would say for them, five years.
0: Okay. Avalanche safety equipment has changed a lot with the advent of things like avalanche airbags, Rico, and this huge popularity surge of ski touring and splitboarding. Have these changes impacted the way you look at beacon design and the larger role of beacons as part of avalanche safety?
1: Yes, I would say transceivers. Yeah, we, we like to use the word transceiver so it doesn't get uh, mixed up with um, personal locator beacons. Have become probably a smaller part of the overall safety quiver. You know, now people are often wearing an airbag, um, maybe an expensive Reco-infused Gore-Tex jacket. So, you know, with the... Same income over more products, you know, people are I would say probably more price sensitive than ever about their transceivers because they need to think about maybe buying an airbag too. That's one reason why we've tried to keep our transceivers a little bit more accessible, a little more affordable. Um, and um, well, radios too. that's part of the quiver now. Yeah, I would say. So you got to kind of make room in people's budget somehow. I guess that's that's the main thing is people only have so much money. Except for the snowmobilers, they seem to have a ton of it. <laughs> <laughs> or they're just happier spending it. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually what they often do well, the, is they'll finance it along with their sled. Oh, okay. So they don't it's not as direct of a hit, you know. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah, so I would say the budget part of it is probably the biggest thing.
0: Well, that's, that's interesting because that when I wrote this question, I was not thinking that would be your answer at all. Um, you know, I was thinking you'd, you'd be saying something about how revolutionary airbags are and how they've made, I don't know, beacons, like people are less interested in, in owning beacons just because of the safety of airbags or like whatever. I don't know, but I didn't expect, I didn't expect price to be the issue.
1: Yeah, I mean, we have heard of people that have decided to use an airbag instead of a transceiver. I and mean, that's a big mistake. I mean, I guess if I was only allowed to wear one or the other, I might choose an airbag. Me too. It's, it's a more proactive form of uh, safety. But I mean, you know, you've, the, the, there's stats out there that say 20% of the time people don't set their airbag up properly, they don't, or they don't pull the trigger for some reason, or it doesn't work because it wasn't built properly.
0: Twenty is <laughs> um, a lot. That's
1: never happened to us, of course. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's a pretty yeah. big number. So you know, you need to you need to have a, a little margin of safety yeah and beacon is, uh, yeah, you gotta have that's that's a given. It's really not an option.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I should hope so at least. So we've already talked a bit about this next question, but there's kind of there's kind of a tricky line to walk in beacon design. You know, beacons need to be extremely intuitive and easy and easy to use, but also powerful and feature rich tools for whatever whatever might might be needed. How how does how do you at BCA manage these seemingly mutually exclusive ideas?
1: Well, with all of our products, we usually have two levels of um, sophistication uh, or features. <laughs> you know, we'll have kind of a more of a recreational uh, targeted model and then more of a pro model. And so that's, that's how we've done it. You know, I, I would say that we have often challenged the idea that a transceiver needs to be rich in features. Um, in fact, just to get back to the whole guiding thing, I'm sure we got off on that track, but it it does provide, a you know, a good uh, end point for discussion. You know, like in a guiding exam in Canada, you're not allowed to use a lot of the features on your transceiver because they want to know that you can use your transceiver if those features aren't working Mm -hmm. so i guess a a feature is valuable if it's going to increase the probability of somebody surviving and if it's not going to fail Um, but a lot of the features that that come out for various reasons don't always work 100 of the time Um, one feature being marking Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes marking doesn't work um, because the overlapping signals sometimes will uh, make it difficult to mark one signal. Sometimes it'll mark both, or it'll mark one and then it'll come back once there's an overlap. Um, so, in that case, you know, that's a feature that's not that reliable. So, you really should know how to beacon search without using marking just by walking around in a pattern and picking off people as they get closer. Um, And that's how they do it in the guiding exams. So anyways, that's kind of how we do it, is we stay, you know, we have two different feature sets and two different price points and uh, have two different offerings. Our tracker three is more feature rich and our tracker S is more of our recreational uh, simpler unit. So, so that's what the S stands for, by the way. Simple. Simple. Yeah. <laughs> not sport or savvy sexy or sexy. No.
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not that sexy unless you're a beacon nerd like me. Well, good. I'm not sure I wanted to know that you find the tracker as sexy, but <laughs> <laughs> now we know. <laughs> All right, Bruce. Um. What's the best question about beacon design or technology or usage or safety that I haven't asked you?
1: Hmm, I don't know. I guess maybe what's the best way to practice using your transceiver would be one, maybe. Yeah, I mean, let's uh, let's talk about that. Well, I usually like to, like at the beginning of a hut trip or something, There will always be a a kind of a beacon scenario. But it's always best if you put yourself in the situation of having to deal with people, panicked people, um, and chaos. You know, I've taken a lot of avalanche courses and rescue courses and... um, the most valuable part is always having to be the leader of a rescue involving lots of people. Um, Because, you know, there's all kinds of things that happen that just never come to mind when you're at a beacon training park or if you're just doing a, you know, a beacon search at a ski waxing party or a, uh, you know, hut trip or something. But um, if you take a course or let's say you're on a, a hot trip, and there's a guide. It's always best if there's a big scenario involving, you know, people that victims that have transmitters on, victims that don't, um, surface clues, maybe even plant somebody in the group that didn't put their transceiver into search mode, and then you'll start seeing all the variables that can can go wrong and really make things. Ugly. And I think that's the most valuable way to practice is to do big group searches where you actually have to coordinate people and you have to prioritize victims and you've got weird terrain to get through and you have to post hole and it's just not beacon searching in the grass on the football field. So I don't, if there's ever an opportunity to do that, I would just step right up and say, okay, I want to be the group leader.
0: Yeah. I think that's valuable. I mean, you've, you touched on it a bit in your research that in addition to things like shoveling and various things that, that the people don't necessarily think are going to be a challenging part of the rescue, the organizational part of it is, 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 is a really, a really challenging thing. And I think that comes down to people and chaos, like, like you mentioned. And so emulating that, however hard that might be, I could imagine it's very valuable. Yeah. Even just pulling your probe out of your backpack,
1: I've seen people take two minutes to do that. You know, it gets hung up in the zipper Then you find out that, you know, one of the sections isn't uh, coming together because it's cracked. And then, you know, it's been in their backpack for four years and it's all rusted together. (laughs) Yikes, yikes. (laughs) just so much more involved, just pulling the gear out. You know, things are iced up. You never think about that stuff when you're just focusing on beacon searching in the grass.
0: Yeah, excellent. Well, I think... um... I don't know about our listeners, but I know I learned a little bit from this conversation. I had a, had a great time talking to you, Bruce. Um, thanks for taking the time to sit down and and uh, go over some 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 safety stuff, some some transceiver stuff. And yeah, thanks.
1: Good. Well, I'll, I'll be glued to uh, blister gear reviews from now on. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be listening to the podcast every
0: day when I go home from work. That's what we like to hear. That's what we like to hear. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thanks for listening. And if you're enjoying these episodes, we'd very much appreciate it if you would leave us a rating or some feedback in iTunes and also spread the word to your gearhead friends. Thanks, everybody. Be safe out there and we'll talk to you next week.